here. So, so today we're going to look at <clears throat> Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 2 and verse 21. Luke chapter 2 and verse 21. One verse. Um, probably not a surprise to you that we would be in Luke chapter 2 this time of year. But uh, the context of the verse is that Jesus, Jesus has been born in Bethlehem. He's an infant. He's eight days old. The shepherds have visited. The wise men have visited and worshipped him. The first week of Jesus' life is over. And we come to this verse. And so let's give our attention to God's word, God's holy, inspired, and Aaron, infallible word, our only rule of faith and practice from Luke 2, verse 21. And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. That's God's word. Let's pray together. Now, Heavenly Father, uh, we pray this every week, but we need it. We dare not come to your word in the flesh expecting to benefit. We don't want to do that. We're here to benefit. We're here to be changed. We're here to have our hearts and our minds enlightened by your Holy Spirit. And we ask that you would do that. So give us ears to hear. Give us understanding. Give us focus. And Lord, help us to hear your voice speaking to us, whatever, whatever it would be that you would impress upon us this morning through, through this text and through your Holy Spirit, it being preached. We pray that you would bless this time for each and every person sitting here today. Work in our hearts. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. You know, a, a baptism is a very special day, isn't it? It's a very special day in the life of the church. Uh, you know, whether it's an adult being baptized or an infant being baptized, I think, uh, and I've baptized both adults and, and infants, I, I think that in general it's probably a little more common in, in uh, the Presbyterian church that we probably see more infants baptized. But uh, it's certainly exciting, uh, whoever it is. Um, you know, I think back to my own uh, three children and their, and their baptisms. And you, if you have children and you can think about your, your kids being baptized, and, and you, you know it was a special day, wasn't it? Um, I don't, don't know exactly the circumstances of, of, of your situation, but of course... Uh, very often there's some kind of a special gown uh, that the baby wears, uh, sometimes a family gown. Uh, there's often a, a special dabbing cloth to dab the, the, the sprinkled water off the head uh, after the water has gone on the head. Um, you have the ceremony itself, and then, and then very often I'd say it's pretty common to have a celebratory dinner afterwards, right? Uh, and, and so it should be. And so the ceremony itself, however, again, we, we sprinkle water on the head uh, and the pastor recites the name of the person being baptized 
and that they are baptized in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and in the name of the Holy Spirit, the triune God. And both the name of the, the child or the adult, if it's an adult, the name of the person being baptized and the names of the triune God, the three names of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they're said all together, right? In one sentence, it's, it's, it's together. In old Europe, in old Europe, if I can talk, the tradition, <laughs> the tradition was to give the name of the baby for the first time at the baptism. So nobody would know the name until the actual baptism. That was the way it was done. So both those names go together. The name of the Godhead and the name of the person being baptized. Here we have the baby Jesus being eight days old, and he is being circumcised. Now we know that circumcision in the Old Testament is the equivalent, essentially, of, of baptism in the New Testament. One was diff they were different in some ways, but they, they were, in essence, uh, pointed to the same reality. And we'll get into that later. They pointed to the reality of saving faith. They were a visible picture, a visible sermon, if you will, of the gospel. Baptism in the New Testament, circumcision in the Old Testament. And what was the significance of Jesus being circumcised and being named here? That's what we want to look at today. What was the, uh, the, the significance of him being circumcised and being named right here? which is what you see at a baptism. What was the significance of it, and how does it apply to us today at Christmas? That's what we want to look at this morning. Let's look, first of all, at the significance of Jesus being circumcised. Now, first of all, that it proved that he was a Jew. It proved that Jesus was a Jew. Because in Genesis chapter 17 and verse 10, the first Jew, if you will, Abraham, this is what God says to him. This is my covenant, this is God speaking to Abraham. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generation. This was a visible sign of God's covenant with Abraham and Abraham's descendants, and it was required of every male Jew. From a practical sense, it was required for Jesus to be able to teach in the temple or in the synagogues, or even to go into the temple or the, the local synagogue where he lived to worship. It was something that had to be done. It proved that he was a physical descendant of Abraham, that he was a, a bona fide Jew. And this was important because the Messiah was a Jew, had to be a Jew. This Messiah had to be descended from the loins of Abraham. This was all important. But the major importance here is that it was an act of commitment to observe the Old Testament law. The law, when I say the law, of course, we, <clears throat> we have three uh, parts to the law in the Old, in the Old Testament. We have the, the Ten Commandments. Uh, we have the moral law summarized in the Ten Commandments. We have the ceremonial law, which is how the Jews would work, worship 
the, how the sacrificial system and so forth and all the instructions that you see specifically in, in Leviticus. And then we had the civil law, which was the laws of society. And very many of those laws of society, you're going to see those same laws on the law books in the courthouse downtown today. That's where originally they came from. And a, a, baptism, a, baptiz, a baptism ceremony today, you know, when you, when you see a family come up and they, and they baptize their child, you'll see vows being taken by the parents, right? And what are the parents vowing to do? They're vowing to bring up the child in the nurture and admission of the Lord, right? They're vowing to bring up the child according to God's word, according to God's law. And you as a church... Take a vow to help them do that, right? And so, part of the part of the uh, uh, the ceremony is to say we're committing this child to God and His Word. That's what we're doing. And here, Jesus was being presented and as a commitment by his parent, his earthly parents, that he would follow. God's law, that he was under God's law. Now the question has to be asked, why would Jesus need to submit to the law? After all, he was the lawgiver. He was the one that gave the commandments to Moses on Sinai. Why would he need to submit to his own law? In some ways, it's a head scratcher, isn't it? But we're going to unravel that. Because it leads us to the significance of his name, his actual name here. Again, if we look down here at verse 21, it says in the middle of the verse, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now, the name Jesus was actually a pretty common name for a Jewish boy at the time, or a Jewish person, a man at the time, or boy. The Old Testament version is Joshua. And Joshua in the Hebrew, the word means Jehovah is salvation. God is salvation. And Jesus in the Greek, his name means Savior. His name means Savior. And we have to remember here that God named Jesus. You know, it says here that it was the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And you have to, we have to take a step back here because we have to realize that this was not the norm, okay? The norm was that the infant would take a family name. This was a very strong Jewish tradition. In fact, if we turn over here one page to Luke chapter 1 and uh, verse 59, we're going to see this with John the Baptist. It says here in Luke chapter 1 and verse 59... So it was on the eighth day, this is John the Baptist they're talking about as a baby. So it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child. Same thing going on here. And they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. In other words, that was what was commonly done in Jewish tradition. But look what it says here. His mother answered and said, verse 60, his mother answered and said, no. 
he shall be called John. Verse 61, but they said to her, this is her family, but there's no one among you, your relatives who is called by this name. This doesn't make sense. Why are you calling him John? Is what they're saying. And verse 63, and so his dad asked for a writing tablet and wrote saying his name is John. And you remember, you remember that the angel had, had appeared to his dad previously, Zacharias, and said, you're going to name him John. Okay? This was the norm. And so for Jesus to be named by other than his parents was unusual. But see, before his birth, just as it was with John, from before his birth, it was by God's design that he would be named Jesus. We see this with the angel appearing to Joseph in the dream in Matthew chapter 1. We see it with the angel appearing in person to Mary in Luke chapter 1. God wanted to make both of his earthly parents very clear that his name was to be Jesus. And his name meant Savior. He was to be called Jesus for he will save his people from his sins, from their sins. It said the angel told his parents. His name meant Savior. Now, names, remember, for these people were very significant. Now, uh, I, mean, I can tell you why I was named, my mom and dad named me Stuart, but I can't tell you what my name means. I'd have to go look it up. I don't even know if it has a meaning. All right? Because it's not a big deal in, in, in the culture I grew up in, what your name means. I don't know what it means. But see, it's not so in this culture. Your name was so significant. Your name, uh, when somebody said your name, they were saying it in, the, in their mind. They were thinking about what your name meant. And so it very, could have, very well could have been this, this to be the case. When they said, Jesus, it's time for supper. What they were maybe thinking was, Savior, it's time for supper. Savior, come clean up your room. Maybe he never had a dirty room. I don't know. But, but that, that's, that's, the, that's how it would have been. Because in their minds, the names were so significant of what they meant. And it's only fitting that the Savior who, of all who would believe in his name would be named Savior. And God was going to make sure that was the case. Now, what is, what is the significance of his name with, in regard to circumcision and how does that relate to Christmas? Well, the central reason that we need a Savior is because we are lawbreakers ourselves. This is why we need a Savior. And a lawbreaker is someone who sins. And sin is simply doing what the Bible says not to do or not doing what the Bible says to do. And all humanity, except for Jesus, have sinned because we've all done something wrong or not done everything right. The scripture has confined all under sin, Galatians 3, verse 22. And because of that, our sin is the barrier to having access to a holy and righteous God. 
Because only a perfectly righteous person can enter into a relationship with a perfectly righteous God. Doesn't that just make basic horse sense? It's the truth. It's a necessity to have access to heaven where only the perfectly holy and righteous enter. And the question then becomes is how can someone be holy and righteous before God since all of us mess up? And there's two answers to that question. It's a two-part answer. There's two ways. The first way would be to live out a perfect life. To do all the set, to do all the, that the Bible says to do and to not do one thing that the Bible says not to do. And to reach the bar of heaven and to be perfect. That's the first way that is theoretically possible. But the problem is, is practically speaking, that's not possible. Because one lie, one malicious thought, etc., etc., keeps us from being perfect. And Jesus was illustrating this with the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19. This is what Jesus was getting at. Where it says in Matthew chapter 19 in verse 16, Now behold, one came and said to him, that is Jesus, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life. What else do I have to do? What else do I have to do to be perfect, to earn it? That's what he was asking. So he said to him, Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, this is the, boy, the man saying back to Jesus, Which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. He's rattling off some of the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still like? I've already done all this. I've checked all those boxes. What else do I have to do? Verse 21, Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. What was Jesus doing here with the young man, the rich young ruler? What he was doing is he was very, very graciously and lovingly putting his finger right on the spot of what the young man had not done perfectly. Not to condemn him, but to simply show him you haven't earned it. You're a coveter. You broke the 10th commandment. It was to show the young man that he needed a savior. That's what Jesus was doing. He had not kept the law perfectly, and therefore he had to have a Savior because to not keep it perfectly necessitates needing a Savior. He needed a righteousness outside of himself that he could not produce himself. Now, Jesus, however, was the only one that did keep the law perfectly. 1 John 3, verse 5 says, In him was no sin. 
And in order for him to perfectly keep the law, he had to submit himself under the law. Galatians 4.4 4 says that he was born under the law by his, own, uh, by his own purpose. He was born under the law. The lawgiver, the righteous one, God in the flesh, lowered himself because of us. He lowered himself to that level to put himself under the law that he gave. It was his first act of voluntarily, voluntarily and willingly placing himself under the law right here when he was circumcised. See, that's the significance of the circumcision, one of the significant, main significances of it. Barnhill said his circumcision was his first suffering for us. And so the eight-day-old Jesus submitted himself to be circumcised to show that he was himself putting himself under the law. Now, what did the circumcision symbolically represent? How does it relate to our salvation? How does it relate to Christmas? You see, the circumcision itself represented salvation. It represented saving faith. It was a visible picture of an inward reality that was to come, that we hope to come on every child that we see baptized. It's the same, in essence, the, what it pointed to is the same as what we see the baptism, baptism pointing to today. You see, the cutting away of the flesh and circumcision represented, it didn't actually do this, but it represented the cutting away of our sin and our sin nature. It represented the breaking away from uncleanness and our sin nature and dedicating that person to God and a clean Nature. It represented the cleansing that salvation gives through the blood of Jesus Christ. It represented what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. It represented the old man being put away and the new man from the Holy Spirit when someone receives Jesus Christ and they repent and they receive Christ and they're unable to believe on him and their heart is changed and they have their sins forgiven and they have the Holy Spirit residing within them and cleaning them up, it represented outwardly that reality. It represented when the child would bleed from the cutting of the flesh. The blood represented the blood of, the, of Jesus to cover our sins. And here the Messiah, the Savior, received the, the sign of salvation. Again, he, he didn't need a Savior because he was the Savior. But he received the sign of salvation because it was his first act of perfectly fulfilling the entire law over his 33-year life. You see, he would say in Matthew chapter 5, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. Well, part of fulfilling it was he had to be circumcised as an eight-day-old person. It was the first act of him earning the righteousness that we need, uh, imputed to us, reckoned to our account, 
to be considered holy before a holy God. It was his first act of living out that perfect life and fulfilling that law in our stead. Now, how do we get this righteousness? How do we get it? We get it the same way Abraham did several thousand years ago. We get it the same way. In essence, we look at, when we look here at Romans chapter 4, it says of Abraham, and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who would believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision that are Jews, but also, who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. You see, it says here in Romans chapter 4, that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. What was that righteousness accounted to him? It was the righteousness of Jesus. And the first act of him living out that perfect life, to have that righteousness, to be accounted to Abraham, was him being circumcised. And so Abraham received the righteousness that he could never produce himself by faith. Faith in the Messiah that was to come, and we receive that righteousness and the faith in the Messiah that has come. Plain and simple. And maybe there's someone here today that you're hearing this and you're like, you know, this makes sense, but uh, I don't know if I've ever done that. I don't know that I've ever, by faith, repented and turned away from my sin and recognized that I need a Savior and recognized I can't earn it. And I've looked myself dead in the eye in the mirror and said, you've never, you've never relied on the righteousness outside of yourself, and you're going to have to. And maybe there's somebody here today that that's where you are, and I'm going to say to you, I remember being there myself. When I was 24 years old. And by the grace of God, He brought me to faith in Him. And I received by faith the righteousness that was outside of myself. And I still stand in that righteousness because I don't have any to stand in. And I would call you to faith in Christ today if that's not something that you've ever done. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, the scripture says. You see, it's only when we believe, as Abraham did here, that our sins are cut away from us in the sight of God. He that came to be sin for us would in our persons be legally unclean, that by satisfying the law he might take away our uncleanness. That's what Hall said. He sums it up so well. You know, at the end of the day, what happened 
in the Old Testament to the saints is really not any different at the heart level than what happens to someone today. Listen to what Moses says in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16. Therefore, he says this to the the Jews, therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. Notice Notice he's talking about the heart. Notice that he's saying, hey, this whole circumcision thing that happens on the physical side, it's it's about the heart. Notice that's what he's saying. He says it here again in in Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants. Why? To love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live Live spiritually. And it's the same thing that happens today when we come to Christ and we receive him. We become redeemed from under the law, as Galatians 4 verse 5 puts it. You say, how does all this relate to Christmas? This is the central reason we celebrate Christmas. This is it. If you want to boil it down to the core, this is what it's about right here. Oh, I love the I love the trees and the poinsettias and the gifts and the food. Y'all y'all will see me on Sunday night, you know I love the food. I love all the stuff, but but at the end of the day at the end of the day he was circumcised as the first act of him putting himself under the law so that he could live out that law for you perfectly that you could never live out and neither could I. Therefore, he, had, he would provide a righteousness, a holiness that we could receive by faith and be reckoned to our account, just like Abraham had it reckoned his account, where we can be received into the sight of a holy God. And when we get it down to the absolute core, center of the core, that's what Christmas is about. But it would only be possible had he put, his, put himself under the law. But the first thing he does in that regard is to be circumcised, submit himself to circumcision. Why did he do that? Because, because he's the Savior. His name means Savior. Plain and simple. He's the Savior. And he's your Savior if you've received him by faith. His name is Savior. Let me close by reading a a poem by Jean Perry. The title of the poem is That Beautiful Name. I know of a name, a beautiful name, that angels brought down to earth. They whispered it low one night ago to a maiden of lowly birth. I know of a name. A beautiful name that unto a babe was given. The stars glittered bright throughout that glad night. And angels praised God in heaven. The one of that name my Savior became. My Savior of Calvary. My sins nailed him there. My burdens he bare. He suffered all this for me. I love that blessed name. That wonderful name. Made higher than all in heaven. T'was whispered I know. In my heart long ago, to Jesus my life I've given. 
that beautiful name, that beautiful name from sin has power to free us. That beautiful name, that wonderful name, that matchless name is Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you from the eternity past, you had a plan. It was all laid out. You, you knew that we would fail. You knew we couldn't save ourselves. You knew we couldn't produce the righteousness that it requires to enter into your presence and to enter into the gates of heaven. So you provided a way. And it was so intentional. And it was such a step down for you to leave heaven and to submit yourself to the law that you gave. But Lord, that's the kind of God you are. You're a God of love. And love was the driver. Your love. I pray, Lord, that, that we would ponder these deep thoughts and further that we would be affected by them at the deepest heart level and that when we say the name Jesus and when we say the name Christ, we would be very mindful that it's so pregnant with meaning and that meaning applies to us. And Father, I pray that if there's one person here today that has not yet received that righteousness by faith that we've talked about, that you would work in their hearts to make that happen. And that this Christmas would be different for them for the first time. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We will... Respond by singing number 226. Notice it's verses 1, 3, 4, and 5. Please stand if you're...